That's how you build rivalries, and that's how you build atmosphere. Edwards, three-pointer, is good! This team is right there with anybody else in, in the country. They are clicking on a kind of a different level that we didn't um, that we didn't see this year. Perry for the lead. Oh! He did it again. This is a personnel issue. Ish. I think I really think it's just a, a player fit. Like I I think, and it again, is. this is this is partially his fault, right? These are his transfers yes. that he brought in, right? But I'm still saying I think this is just a whiff. I think this is just a whiff on you his part. You can't, you can't, it, you cannot whiff with this much talent. And I love Texas Tech. This is home. And I get to stay home. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Texas 24 Podcast on the Dave Campbell's Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Bruni, and joining me once again is Ishmael Johnson. Ish, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm starting to actually lay out the groundwork for the magazine. Uh, I know it's some months off. I'm still really getting my uh, fingers dirty, but uh, starting to lay down some ideas and some just some early planning for what we got for that this year. Yeah, I mean, you put the football magazine to, uh, or at least the cover, you got, yeah. the ma- you got the cover out the way, so now you can start looking at the, the basketball side of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we continue to uh, talk to beat writers from around the state, uh, on this podcast here today, we're going to talking Baylor uh, with Bears Illustrated, Tim Watkins. Tim, how, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to talk to you guys and, uh, you know, tell, tell your listeners all about Baylor basketball. Yeah, as if we don't talk about Baylor enough on this podcast, right? It- <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> we are, I think, like, uh, all our women's coverage for, like, the first couple of weeks was just like, all right, so is Nikki Collin good or not? Like, <laughs> trying to figure out what was going on. Exactly, exactly. That that's really that's really all. Baylor and Texas, yeah. We 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 need to. That's the the headliners a lot of times because they're so yeah. interesting, uh, a lot. But uh, yeah, we're gonna talk the men's team first and then get into the women later. Um, but starting with Scott Drew's team, obviously, you know, twenty twenty national champions coming to this year with a very different team. You know, losing the the backcourt trio. And, and we were kind of hesitant because, you know, they bring in Jeremy Sohan and bring in Kendall Brown. And it's like all these freshmen. And then James Akinjo transfers in. Adam Flagler in a bigger role. Matthew Meyer in a bigger role. The two centers in a bigger role. And to their credit, they start off the year 15-0. and Back to number one in the country for, for a week or two. And they finished the year 27-7, and obviously. Uh, not the the ending that they wanted, losing to North Carolina in the second round of the tournament. Uh, just overall, how would you describe the year and uh, just how ha- how it felt going through it? Yeah, it, it's interesting to say that a a co Big Twelve championship and a number one seed could be anything but a success. But I would say, in some ways, it was a little disappointing. It was a team and program that I think prior to some of the injuries really hitting with LJ Choir, Cryer, with Everyday John, it was a team that once again proved to be in the elite, to be in the true national championship conversation by the end of the year, really losing two of their top six, top seven players 
They just weren't there at that point. It had Jeremy Sohan, it had Kendall Brown in larger than expected roles. I think both of them were very successful freshman players, but Baylor didn't win with freshmen in 2019. They didn't win with freshmen in 2020. They won with juniors and seniors. And last year, Baylor didn't have a lot of, of depth that was experienced playing heavy minutes, playing those key roles that in 19 and 20, we saw Jared Butler, we saw MHGOT, we saw Mark Vidal and Donovan uh, Davion Mitchell play those big minutes, those two back-to-back years. This is really going to be the interesting year where Flo Thamba is used to those bigger minutes now. Adam Flagler is used to those bigger minutes now. So you're starting to get some key guys with that really gritty experience that we simply didn't have last year. So I think it was a very successful year for the defending champs to come out, uh, emerge and show that it wasn't a one-year flash in the pan. They won the Big 12 title again. They emerged as a one seed. They ran into a heater of a team in North Carolina in the second round. Um, and that was really the, the only thing that stopped them from getting into that second weekend um, after that amazing, incredibly frustrating, and then awesomely amazing, happy game that ended, unfortunately. Um, I was there screaming my head off, so it was it was fun. But I think that game really encapsulated Baylor basketball last year. It was awesome. It was amazing. It was slightly frustrating, and it left a little bit to be desired at the very end. Were you surprised at all with how, especially how they started the year? Because I think when me and Matthew were previewing the team, I was like, okay, you lose those backcourt guys. You lose somebody like Mark Vidal who held so much together. Um and you had a lot of guys who had minutes, right? You mentioned Flo Thamba, Chama Chachua, Flagler, Meyer, Meyer, but a lot of guys who weren't used to be, you know, they were at times a third, fourth, fifth option <laughs> depend, uh, at any time on the floor. Were you surprised how well guys like James Akinjo, Kendall Brown, Sohan came in um, and how it kind of continued? Because, I mean, at the beginning of the year, there were questions, people were asking questions like, is this better than the title winning team? I think, you know, everybody who kind of followed both teams knew where the title winning team was separated itself, um, particularly when it came to like shooting and kind of that offensive ceiling. But were you surprised at all last year about how the, how quickly this team seemed to gel with a lot of new players playing big minutes? I, I was, I actually was. And um, the main reason for that is I think the success that Baylor has had with transfers and newcomers mm-hmm has been built on people being part of the team for a redshirt year or a set year or in a a secondary or lower tier role. We saw that with Jared Butler as a freshman playing behind Makai Mason, emerging later in the year as Mason struggled with, or as Mason struggled with his foot injury, and then emerging as the true starter the next season. We saw Davion Mitchell. We saw Macy Oteague, Adam Flagler sit a full year. We saw um, Flo Thamba and, and Jonathan Chamuchachua not really play a lot. Uh, Freddie Gillespie, even before that, mm-hmm. was a, a walk-on, n- really didn't play at all for the first year and a half before Tristan Clark went down. So a lot of the guys, it took time for them to buy into the system, buy into the process, really fit into the team. Last year with Akinjo Brown and Sohan, that was the first time we saw him snap the finger and be part of that culture. I think part of that is the cachet that Scott Drew and Baylor University and the program as a whole has earned over the 2020 and 2021 seasons, uh, especially culminating in the national championship. It's easier to get kids to buy in when they see that banner. 
yeah. on the side of the practice court. It's easier to get them to buy in when they see national champions on the floor that they're playing on. It's easier to sell when you have that cachet in the bank. Scott Drew's got some big checks of respect in the bank now to show these kids and say, hey, if you do it my way, I can make you a champion. I can make you an early NBA draft choice like he did with Davion Mitchell, and he has done with other players. That has just built up extensively over the last two to three years, especially. And I think it's going to be very interesting as we go into next year with Keontae George, as we see Langston Love emerge from an unfortunate injury in redshirt season. It's going to be interesting to see how quickly they adapt and adopt to the overall system to see if they fit in like Brown and Sohan did last year. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that cachet. I think we'll we'll touch on that in a bit when we talk about the additions just with the the recruiting class they were able to bring in. But I, I do want to talk about the injuries because to me, this is, we talked about them starting the year 15. No one ish uh, mentioned, you know, there was chatter about, is this team better than last year's team? Is this your team better than the, the national championship winning team? And that was at full strength. And I think at full strength, it's at least a conversation when jo- Jonathan Chamachacho goes down, LJ Cryer goes down and not for nothing, Langston Love missing the season albeit I don't know how much he plays, but I still think he's an incredibly talented player coming out of high school. When you lose those three guys, you had minutes where they were having to play, you know, Jeremy Sohan and Kendall Brown as your as your two bigs at times. And it just felt like this isn't what this was supposed to be, right? Like this is a, this was a piece together and it kind of showed against North Carolina. They had to win the game. Did it just feel like Man, there's just not a not enough left. Like injuries just really ended like this team's hopes to a degree. It's tough. Anytime you take who was the Baylor leading scorer at the time of his injuries in LJ Cryer, mm-hmm. you take a guy that even with only three quarters of the Big 12 season still won Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. Those are two of your top four, five, six guys, guaranteed. Langston Love was a guy that scored 20 points in that scrimmage before he tore up his knee against Texas A&M, a team that I can't remember if they only went to the NIT championship or or championship game or won at all, but they obviously were a solid Mm -hmm. team later in the year after they had their own injuries and situations that, that really hurt them. It was a team that I never thought was as good as 2021. Um, that to me is a special elite team that they, you can make a case for a COVID outbreak, outbreak away from possibly running the table. They were that good. And I think there was that big of a gap between Baylor Gonzaga and everybody else last season. Last year, the gap was smaller between all of the, the top 10 to 12 to 15 teams that most likely had a, a realistic opportunity to win the national championship. 2021, there were two teams that could win it. This year, there were double-digit teams that could win it. And we saw that with UNC making a run. We saw it with Kansas, the team that was on that one-two line for most of the year making that run. There wasn't that dominant team. So I always had the 2021 team ahead. I will say, I think the defensive upside of the 2022 team Mm -hmm. was better. Yeah, And I give that due to the athleticism and length that they had to create steals to get out in transitions create easy buckets um they weren't nearly as good of a shooting team though as that 2021 team that had four legitimate 40 percent three point three point shooters that could play big minutes for them last year was really just flagler by the end of the season after meyer hit you know just just wasn't shooting as well as in the larger minutes lar- uh, lower efficiency type role 
So it was a, it was a position that I think defensively, you know, Brown is an elite defensive player. Uh, Jonathan Chamuchachua just got better and better before his injury. Um, Jeremy Sohan was significantly better of a defender than I saw him coming into the program, but he was a guy that could, that could switch one through five. And that's one of the reasons why he's probably going to be a top eight, top 10, top 12 NBA Mm -hmm. draft choice because of that defensive flexibility. He's exactly what the NBA wants in terms of being able to switch, make things happen off the bounce, hit open shots. He's a guy that has an incredible defensive upside as a role player in the NBA right now. And having that length and athleticism that Mark Vidal, you can say a lot of great things about him. He was a bulldog. He's one of the best offensive rebounders in the, in the NCAA in the recent years, but the defensive glass, he would get beat a lot Mm -hmm. on the defensive glass defensively. You could finish over him. He wasn't impactful when it came to the primary defender as a blocker, secondary defense and help side defense. He was elite. But as a primary defensive guy, especially in the post, he was an average to below average blocker just due to his height. You could muscle him out of the way. There were a few guys that could do that, but you could go over the top of him. So I think Baylor had better length, better athleticism, better rebounding on the defensive side, and that could make them a better defensive team. I think before we get on to kind of the departures and the additions they've made in the offseason – I do want to hit on one guy we haven't talked about yet, and it's James Akinjo, because he's going from that backcourt during the national title year, that trio, and coming in with the expectations that they had. I could, I can't say anything like, I can't say anything negative about what James Akinjo did this year. He came into a situation where, okay, he's replacing obviously Jared Butler, but also these insane, probably one of the, me and Bruni called them probably the best ISO team in college we've ever seen. Um, and he, he could have easily come in and said, okay, I got to do that. I got to do that myself, right? I got to be, I got to be Butler. I got to be Mitchell. I got to be Teague. But he came in and basically said, no, I'm, I'm going to get everybody else around me going. And how, how valuable was he just overall orchestrating whatever they were at time? Because even, I remember even the, the COVID cancel year, even that offense wasn't very good to watch at times. Like it was really that, that, that national title years when they really took off and that shooting took off, but they could have easily fallen back into that kind of pit where it's like, Oh man, if they shut down this guy, Baylor's going to shoot 20% from the floor and not do anything. But like, they never had those games where things just didn't work offensively because they had him. It seemed like how valuable was he just in terms of getting everything into click? He was the rudder. And we saw that, in the opening or the first loss for Baylor against Texas tech, where he went up, fell on his tailbone, got hurt. And he just wasn't right for weeks. Despite, despite trying to play through that injury, he was a guy that, you know, Baylor had three guys that could create off the bounce and get their shot anytime that they wanted in that 2021 season. Um, You can say a lot of great things about Adam Flagler. He improved a lot in that later in the year. But to begin in the year, he had the, the, the wrist and hand injury. He wasn't feeling and creating off the bounce. Really, it was just Akinjo creating off the bounce. Even Meyer was limited a lot of that last year as mm-hmm. well as he tried to find his role and try to figure out what he was supposed to be for the Bears last season. And he, I think he struggled with that, quite honestly. Yeah. Akinjo was their only guy that create off the bounce. Um, he was their best passer. He was the best playmaker. He was the one guy that could get to the rim consistently with a guy in front of him. 
And that's always a skill that I think is critical in the college game. You usually have to have one of those guys that can create off the bounce with somebody in front of them, um, at least on the court all the time. Baylor had three guys that could do that in 2021. And they always had two of them out there at the same time. And then you had elite spot up shooters or secondary ball handlers mm -hmm. that could, that could take advantage of uh missed rotation and create off the bounce like a Matthew Meyer, like an Adam Flagler. Um, Akinja was really their only guy for the first half of the year. And it took a while for Flagler to get used to that for Meyer to get used to that of not just creating off of the help, but creating off of the bounce. Um, it really, he's really struggled though after that injury for a couple of weeks. And I think the biggest gap between him and the prior team, and again, he was an impossible situation of replacing two of those three guys really with his own role is defensively. He's a bulldog. He tries hard. He's a fighter. He's not Davion Mitchell. Nobody is defensively. Mm -hmm. He's not even Jared Butler. And Jared Butler went from a below average defensive player his first year at Baylor to being a legitimate first team all defensive player conference and competing for conf or defensive player of the year in the conference and, and, and nationwide him Teague or him Mitchell and vital all were on one of that final list for defensive player of the year and Butler deserved to be there. Akinjo wasn't at that level, wasn't even close to that level. So that point of the spear on the defensive side was missing, but offensively he gave you everything you wanted and more when he was healthy. Yeah, man, all, all this talk about the 21 team makes me want to go watch that Gonzaga game again. Uh, that game I don't still... want I don't want to admit how many times I've watched that game. Dude, I, <laughs> it was, we did a podcast that night after the game because we couldn't wait. We were like, we're so wired from this game that like we needed to record that night. I, I, I would be shocked if I haven't watched like the nine minute highlight version. Yeah, at least. 300 times oh, it's, it's, so, it's so it's so good because like we I, I remember we'll get back on topic soon but i remember in that episode we talked about like in recent history just like the, the best teams of the era mm -hmm. and like we were trying to ima imagine like i think we came to the conclusion that like one of the villanova teams is probably one of the ones that's like, i like the 2018 i think it was 2018 villanova, 2018 villanova like that one. and then and i then, think i said 2012 kentucky and like, yeah. that was it yeah, I, was there, like, might, like, there like, might be a Kansas team in there, but that's a maybe. short list. That that that's a short list to be able to provide. Um, and yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it it was a special team um, that every Baylor team. You always remember your first. Mm -hmm. Every Baylor team for, throughout the rest of history will be compared against. And to do that, to do what this Baylor's team did a different team without four key critical guys um, that really were warriors for this program for <laughs> seeming like a decade in Mark Vidal's case to three to four years in Teague Mitchell and Butler to be able to be even in the conversation for even a moment of time is, is a resounding resounding success for Scott drew and his amazing staff. Yep. Yeah. Before we get to the women, uh, let's let's talk about the turnover here real quick. Run through them. Departures. Jeremy Sohan, Kendall Brown, James Akinjo, Matthew Meyer. Um, returners. Adam Flagler, Flo, Flo Thamba, Dale Bonner, LJ Cryer, Langston Love, Jordan Turner, Zach Loveday. And I want to make sure I have this right. Jonathan Chamo Chachua is returning, correct? Yes, he is back. 
sources indicate he probably won't play this year due to the catastrophic knee injury. Okay. Um, it's going to be difficult to see him this year. It's not impossible. You know, he's going to be rehabbing every day, doing what he needs to do. You don't get a nickname by everyday John by sitting on the couch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, So you know, he's going to put himself in his position to be able to get back as quickly as he can. Um, there is not as much confidence that that is going to be this season, at least through January, um, most likely missing the whole season, but coming back for the 23, 24 campaign. Okay. Yeah. Those returners. And then additions, we mentioned County George, um, stud freshman that's going to come in and play immediately. Uh, West Virginia transfer Jalen Bridges, BYU transfer, uh, Caleb Loner, and then two more freshmen in Joshua, I cannot say his last name. Oji Nanwu. Oji Oji. Yeah, there you go. Oji Wuna or Oji Wuna. Sorry, Oji Wuna. Okay, I'll get it. I've got I've got months to be able to prepare to be able to say his name. All season to get this right. If we can get Jonathan Chamuachacho down, we can eventually get Jonathan Oji Wuna down. And then Dantuan Grimes. Dantuan Grimes. Yeah, it's it. It's going to be interesting, you know, um, with everyday John most likely not to play. You're really looking at Flo Thamba playing the role that he played in the last uh, quarter of the season, playing 28 plus minutes. Really, um, with everyday John and, and Thamba playing, it was a 2020 game split. Can we get 20 minutes from each of these guys? Unless there was flat foul trouble, which really they, neither of them ran into uh, consistently. Uh, they were both playing 20 minutes a game. Uh, Thamba's going to need to play to 28 minutes. And that's really what he averaged after Chamochachua went out. Uh, Ojin Wuna is going to fill some of that role, possibly. Um, he's raw, uh, defensively hustle. He's going to look a lot like Chamochachua. Um, he doesn't have the touch yet, but Chamochachua didn't have that his first year either. Um, so it's going to take him some time. He's a guy, though, that from a defense, from a rebounding, from the ability to switch out on the perimeter that Baylor needs from its post players, he's going to be able to do that. And you're talking about playing him six to eight, six to 10 minutes a game. Um, you know, Caleb Lohner played a lot of center and five at BYU. He's mainly going to be a forward this year. Uh, him or uh, Jalen Bridges is likely going to start at that four spot, but you could see Loner and Bridges out there at the same time. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that post rotation works. Really, the guards are going to be Cryer, it's going to be Flagler, and it's going to be the five star stud freshman George. Those are going to be the guys carrying the big minutes. I think Love is going to play that three spot. Uh, as that bigger guard, that Maceo Teague type role that that uh, George is going to play to begin the season. Love is going to be in that role as well. And then you have guys like Dale Bonner, who played a lot of strong minutes last year, struggled with his shot last year. But uh, in, in at his prior stop, he was a 35 to 40 percent shooter. He's a guy that should be able to have more confidence, become at least an average three-point shooter moving on and then Dantuan Grimes the the scouting report that I got from him is a Davion Mitchell light and I I just want to say that very delicately (laughs) very delicately I think 2019 Mitchell is the expectation a lighter version of that you're talking about a pit bull on defense a guy that can create off the bounce and dribble be able to to finish through contact a streaky three-point shooter most likely um but 
could play some minutes as that backup point guard with Bonner also playing off the bench in that role. So Baylor's going to have a strong guard rotation next year where Dale Bonner is your fourth guy, fifth guy, maybe sixth guy if Grimes works out. So there's some options there where Baylor could have a really, really good and deep guard depth, something that they struggle with at the end of the year because of injury. Yeah. One, uh, one part. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was oh, going to say one departure I did want to talk about real quick was, um, you know, Scott Drew's longtime assistant, Jerome Tang, uh, gets the Kansas State job. Uh, I believe they promoted Alvin Brooks the third, I believe, to associate head coach now. You know, what was what was Tang's role? Because um, I'm somebody who who loosely knew, but and I thought Kansas State made a great hire when they made it when he, when I found out he was a candidate. Um, you know, what are the what, what are they losing with with Jerome Tang as far as the, the staff is concerned? Well, one correction, both Alvin Brooks and John Jacobs were promoted to associate head coach. Okay, gotcha. So they were both given that role um, to really replace, replace what Jerome Tang did. And Jerome Tang came to Baylor uh, with Scott Drew in 2004. That was my senior year at Baylor. Um, so I was there for the Dave Bliss era and then the very beginning of the, the Scott Drew era. So he was there from, from day one pretty much uh, joining right after some of the Valparaiso assistant coaches and a support staff joined uh, Drew right before, right after he got hired, Tang started a month or so later. So he's a guy that has been there throughout the entire process, primarily as a recruiter, really the recruiting star and the guy with the Texas connections uh, mm -hmm. to begin. But from a development, from a coaching perspective, he's a guy that really worked with the post players early on. You want to talk about Corey Jefferson. You want to talk about Quincy Acey. Those are guys that that, that um, Coach Tang really spent a, spent a lot of time with in the beginning of his tenure there. You want to talk about the Bears' defensive system and scheme the last few years. That was Tang. Tang was calling and running those plays with Alvin Brooks sitting right beside him kind of as his assistant. So Brooks is going to be more relating or more focused on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Jacobs has kind of been the offensive coordinator, so to speak, for lack of a term. But um, Jerome Tang... Again, I, I've known him since 2004. Um, one of the best men that I've met, a guy that really breathed the Baylor culture and really co-piloted this program the last 10 years with Scott Drew. As everybody else on that support staff, that coaching staff changed, it was Drew and Tang. And there's a reason why when Scott Drew was hired, got that beautiful bottle of champagne and said, open it when, when a special night. He didn't open it when they won the national title. He opened it when Tang got hired by Kansas State. That is the definition of Baylor's culture. That is the definition of what Scott Drew, Jerome Tang have built. And that's what, you know, John Jacobs and that's what Alvin Brooks are going to be stepping into. Um, and there's a reason why when Scott Drew had to replace Jerome Tang, Jared Dunnis, a guy that has been with the program for a decade, He's now in that third assistant coach spot. They didn't go out and find a new associate head coach. They promoted, they moved a longtime guy that had helped in the recruiting show, especially in Minnesota and Minneapolis where Baylor had some success recent years. They promoted and slid somebody up the ranks. And I think you're going to see more and more of that as Baylor's coaching staff changes. Because guys like Alvin Brooks, guys like John Jacobs, he was mentioned for some coaching spots this, this offseason. They're going to be head coaches in, in the uh, NCAA sooner than later. And Baylor is going to have to continue to rebuild that coaching staff. And, and Scott Drew has proven to be able to do that well. Yeah, going from 
something that's built to a culture that is under construction right now. Um, first year coach Nikki Collin for the women's basketball program ends her first year 28 and 7 overall, 15 and 3 in conference, uh, loses in the second round of the NCAA tournament to South Dakota after really uh struggling a struggling performance on offense uh, where they scored 47 points obviously we knew it was going to be different from Kim Mulkey I mean that's just you know it's just how we, how it goes especially when you hire from kind of the WNBA um kind of a type of coach uh but just how would you describe her first year and just the the women's basketball program um in 2021 you know uh we talked about how the men's program will always be compared to that 2021 team to even a greater extent everything that the lady bears do will be compared to what kim mulkey did in building a top three program of the last 20 years um you're looking at uconn maybe stanford or notre dame and baylor those are really only the four over the last 20 years that i would put in that conversation um, three national titles. Um, I can't even remember how many Big 12 t- championships they've won in a row. And there, there were two check marks that Baylor fans said that Nikki Collin has to do, especially with Melissa Smith, Queen Eggbo, and a, a depleted roster, but you had the National Player of the Year candidate. You had to win the Big 12 title, and you got to get to the Sweet 16. She did the first. She took a zigzag way to get there, but she did. We the were first. not sure on this podcast. We were not sure if they were going to get there. The, uh, the bears illustrated message board. I would say the vast majority had doubts at certain times, um, but she did it. She absolutely kept that streak alive. The sweet 16 streak is ended. And that is a, a mark on the record of Nikki Collins first year. However, an impossible to difficult situation. You had Melissa Smith, you had Queen Egbo, and you had a roster that really doesn't fit what Nikki Collin wants to do. And and researching how her teams played in the WNBA and really understanding what she wants. She wants multi-positional players. She wants switchability on on uh, defense. She wants players that can put the ball on the on the court. She wants players that can shoot open shots. They had one player that fits that definition on the entire roster in Alyssa Smith. They had point guards and they had post players and they had Alyssa Smith. That's the exact opposite of what Nikki Collin wants her program to look like. And I think you saw that in the transfer portal. And I think you saw that in the recruiting class. Every player they got was between 5'11 and 6'1. They had one player. And it was Alyssa Smith who was 6'4 that could really define that role of a, a, a pretty much a wing in the NBA is what she wants. She wants a bunch of 3 and D players. They had Alyssa Smith last year. That's it. And she had to be a post player, and she had to be their, their ball handler at times, and she had to be their best rebounder, and she had to go get all the misses. So it was a very bad roster structure. Oh, plus they only had like seven players for most of the season. So you had to grind Smith and Egbo into the ground. You had to ride, ride Sarah Andrews and Asbury and everybody else into the ground. So to do what they did last year, build that rotation um, and make it work, I consider last year a success because 
this team and the future of the Lady Bears program and Nikki Collin will look extremely different than what we saw last year. Good, bad, or indifferent, she is going to win in a different way. She's going to press the tempo, which they couldn't really do last year because of their, the lack of rotation. They're going to have multi-positional players all over the court, which they couldn't do last year because of the roster limitations. They're going to have more of a shared load of scoring, which they couldn't do last year because Nalissa Smith was really the one person that could consistently score. So I consider last year a success outside of the second round. They got to the Sweet 16. I think I'd be very, very happy with the performance last year. My expectations were actually for them not to win the Big 12. So it actually overexceeded mm-hmm. because I saw the lack of fit in what Nikki Collin wants to do with her basketball team and what li- the Lady Bears actually had to provide her. Real quick, yeah, I think um, – Real quick-ish. Uh, yep. I, I just – why did they only have seven scholarship players? Or I was, eight I was just going to mention that too. <laughs> it well, we, we, it we bugged me so much. Before the, year, before the year, we were like, I was looking through the roster. I was like, this doesn't, I'm missing something. Something, something doesn't end up. So, so there, there's three primary reasons I would say. Number one, um, Kim Mulkey always kept a short scholarship list. Eight, nine, 10, 11 scholarship players. She never went to the full maximum because she wanted her scholarship players to play. And she didn't think that she could keep 15 scholarship players happy. So she was always on the lower level of the amount of scholarship players that you have. So you're already starting with a lower amount. Secondly, the timing of Mulkey's departure was much later than the traditional coaching carousel. So all of a sudden, the transfer portal was already picked over substantially by the time Mulkey left, and then Colin was hired a month, month and a half later. Third, you had departures like Moon Erson. You had the uh, the uh, true freshman that they signed out of Arkansas, Miriam Dowda, I believe her name is, um, tra- not, not do her LOI and then transfer to Arkansas at the last minute. Uh, you had other transfers leave, and then all of a sudden – there are seven, eight scholarship players and the Camaria McDaniel never could get right. Never could get healthy. Didn't fit right. Um, I believe she's on her way to Michigan state now um, after transferring from Baylor. So there are a lot of unfortunate reasons. Could Nikki Collin and, and the lady bears have built out that roster a little bit more? Yeah, but they're taking secondary or tertiary prospects either out of high school, out of the JUCO ranks or out of transfer portal. And that's locking in scholarship spots for one, two, three, even four years. And that's something I guess Nikki Collin and her staff decided not to do. Now we see the flexibility where they're going to have seven, eight newcomers this year. They're going to have 10 to 12 scholarship players, and we're going to actually be able to see a a true rotation. Yeah, I think when you you watched them last year and the frustration came from like, and I understood where where Nikki Collin was coming from because she's she's building – you know, you had a Jordan Lewis, you had a, uh, um, the, what they what they added on the perimeter. And it's clearly, like you mentioned, a perimeter-oriented team mm-hmm. that resembles more of the pro style. But also you have, like, a top player in college basketball in the post. And, like, right. so you're watching, like, I remember so many games where they're, like, they're shooting, like, 25 threes. And Melissa Smith has, like, 12 points. And you're, like, what is going on? Like, you're, like, you're, like, I get it, right? This is what you want the team to be. But also, like, you got to also kind of satisfy the, the best player and that's how you at least immediately i felt like there were some times where i think they went away from her a little bit too much i Mm -hmm. I feel like like you mentioned it was kind of a team in the in the middle of like clearly a 
uh, a two towers type Kim Mulkey team versus the, the, the modern basketball um, equivalent. But right. yeah, I, I think that it kind of all came down in that South Dakota game where they're playing a team that outshot them. And so therefore they're trying to chase and they didn't necessarily have the depth of shooting to be able to compete with them. And it just, you know, you eventually just keep missing shots and the deficit gets bigger and bigger. Um, I guess, I don't know. I didn't really have a question about that, but I guess that's kind of, it's kind of yeah. commenting on what you kind of observed as well. I, I would say in a perfect world, Nikki Collin probably wanted to play Nelissa Smith more at the three, but she didn't have the depth in the post to be able to do that. Sure. She wanted more size on the perimeter and their biggest guard was five foot eight. Right. I, the first time I saw him last year, it was against UT Arlington. I, I live here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. My brother, um, as a UTA grad, so we had a, uh, a, a fun little bet on the game, which I, I never worried about. And, and uh, it, it, it was interesting. I was like, wow, UTA actually has players between five, nine and six foot that are causing problems right. because they can just go post up Sarah Andrews. They can go post up Jordan Lewis. They could finish over them. They could go through them. They could get offensive rebounds. And, and Baylor was really struggling with that because you had two posts and a bunch of point guards mm-hmm. and five, eight and under type guards you didn't have somebody that could come off the wing and really provide them size and strength. And and then, you know, they would try to go three bigs and then all of a sudden you're just grinding them into the ground. So, all right, put a point guard back in there. Now you're running three guards. And it was interesting. I, I, I completely agree ish with, with your early season thoughts where I love that they were shooting and missing at the beginning of the year because they had the green light to do that. Mm-hmm. A under Kim Mulkey, you did not have the green light to do that. Right. You would be pulled to the bench, kicking and screaming and sat down and yelled at. And you couldn't make that mistake and be aggressive in that manner. And I think at the beginning of the year, probably the first third of the season, they had to learn how to play with that green light. They had to learn that they could miss and not have to look back at the bench going, am I getting pulled? Mm-hmm. partly because they didn't have anybody to pull them for. But secondly, that's not Nikki Collins style. And she wanted her players to learn from those mistakes, not be yelled at for those mistakes. And I think that's the biggest difference that the entire Lady Bears program that was returning had to figure out their spot. And once they did, they started playing much more freer, much more easily but then they get to the second round and all of a sudden everything just gets tighter and, and credit South Dakota state. I thought they defended as well as any team I've seen defend. Absolutely. They were in the lady bears jerseys from, from opening tip to the very end. And they rebounded their butts off. No team had kept Melissa Smith off the glass. Like they did all season. And then they made enough shots to just keep that distance, keep that distance, keep that pressure on the home team, higher seeded favorites. And that's what you want to do on the road uh, as the underdog. Keep it close. Keep in front. Make the team feel that pressure. And and I think the Lady Bears did. Yeah. Um, Ish, you got anything else on on the women's side? Uh, I guess one of the the last questions I had was, you know, you mentioned you didn't expect to win the Big 12 last year, um, and I'm assuming that's because of, of Vic Schaefer and what Texas was doing. Um, you know what? It, like, to me, it's clear now that it's kind of weird having this role reversal now of Texas having an identity, right? Mm-hmm. 
um, and Baylor kind of now being in that transition period, what did adding Vic Schaefer to the conference do to kind of just the overall balance of it? Because, you know, he comes in, they obviously uh, uh, nick a game off Baylor last year and they look really good. They have a star freshman now in Rory Harmon, and they clearly have a brand of basketball that they're recruiting to, and that's really tough to play against. Um, you know, going forward for Baylor, like what is that What is that emergence? Because it was always seemed like Texas, you know, with Karen Aston, it was kind of like they were fine, but it was like, eh, they're mm-hmm. not going to beat Baylor. It's clear. Now it's kind of like, okay, now there is kind of a leveling of the playing field a little bit, at least until Nikki Collin uh, sorts things out there. What does that, you know, do for the balance of the conference now, now that we're seeing Texas kind of emerge? Yeah, well, at least for the next, what, two or three seasons um, before they're off to the SEC yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, that's to, to go play Kim Mulkey again, by the way. Sorry, Vic, you're going to have to deal with her a little bit more. Um, it, it's it's fascinating. I, I've always believed that in college sports, football, basketball, baseball, whatever it is, the identity that that coach builds is even more important than the players that they build it with the identity of who you are as an organization. I think talking football, Dave Aranda has done that extremely well um, uh, at, at Baylor for, for the football program. You know exactly what you're going to get with a, a Dave Aranda team. I think that's a reason why Texas A&M and Texas uh, prior to their current regimes really struggled at times. Cause what was their identity? What would you define Kevin Sublin's teams as sure. what would you define uh, Tom Herman's team as there really wasn't a good definition for that. Um, looking at Dave Aranda, you know exactly what his team is. Looking at Vic Schaefer, looking at Kim Mulkey, you know exactly what team you're going to get. Just the names on the back of the jerseys change. The all Big 12, all conference, all Americans change because they're fitting a role. They're fitting a scheme. They're fitting a type. I think Nikki Collin is, is, is going to develop a system that if I had to pick a marquee program that would be similar, I would probably point to an Oregon. Uh, where it is more leaning pro style, multi-position, more three-point shooting, run and gun a little bit, that quote-unquote Golden State Warriors type feel to it, where you're playing that lineup of death. You're playing four multi-position players around a point guard. You're putting a lot of shooting in 3 and D out on the court and be able to, to really take advantage of mistakes in transition with turnovers and long rebounds, which there are a lot of long rebounds in women's basketball. You can start really creating transition opportunities off of those. Kimoki never wanted to do that. She wanted to slow it down, throw it to a big, and play off of that inside-out game. I think Collins is going to be an outside-in game. Mm-hmm. And I think the lack of a second marquee program in the Big 12 the last decade has hurt Baylor. It has hurt them several times from a seeding perspective and not getting a number one seed. It has hurt them in preparation. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, they hold over the head of Big 12 football. Oh, you haven't played a tough enough schedule. Oh, you got Kansas and you got Kansas or whatever. I think that's helped Baylor in the Big 12 men's team where they are playing in the elite conference. The, the women's Big 12 conference has not been elite. It has been a secondary to tertiary conference in the power six, power five level. And that's hurt them as they prepare. You know, they won three championships, but they only won one with Brittany Griner. They only won one with Melissa Smith. Every seven years, they win one. I have conversations with a lot of fans that it's fair to say that the expectations and the caliber of players that Kim Mulkey brought in, three national championships is a little disappointing in a lot of ways. 
you can make a case that they could have one or two more very, very easily. Only winning one with Brittany Griner. Ooh, mm. that hurts. That hurts. Only winning one with someone like Melissa Smith. And it was during her freshman year. Ooh, that hurts. That hurts. So it's going to be interesting how Texas really brings out the best of Baylor these next few years while they're playing. And it's going to be fascinating to see what that relationship with Baylor is in the future with AM, with Texas, dare I say, even with LSU, another regional competitor. Will we see Baylor play against them when, you know, I think from a football perspective, from a men's basketball perspective, the newcomers to the Big 12 are bringing a lot. Mm-hmm. From a women's basketball perspective, it's a harder case to make how much they're bringing. Yep. Well, you got me doing the math over here. Uh, I look forward to the 2025-2026 season when Baylor wins a national championship. <laughs> it's it's in the cards. I've already I've already uh, got it written down in my, uh, in my planner to celebrate it. Yeah, seven years. Every seven years, we win it all. There you go. I, I will I will place that futures bet over here in Louisiana. <laughs> so there, there you go. Um, but no, we we've taken up enough of your time. But uh, again, we appreciate it. And uh, for everybody listening, you can check out Tim's work at Bear, Bears Illustrated twenty four seven site. Um, Tim, we appreciate you having us on, or we appreciate you coming on, rather. And uh, yeah, man, best best of luck this year in the crazy football season, and uh, definitely going to be an interesting basketball season as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for guys for having me on. Appreciate the time. And hopefully you'll be talking a lot more about Baylor uh, all season. Cause that usually means good things for us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Appreciate it, man.